Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed the more than 125 interviews in this podcast series so far, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. On today's show, my guest, Doug W., shares his story that begins with a childhood during which he enjoyed all the opportunities to succeed in life. Unfortunately, a learning disability, combined with a short stature, made for an academic struggle in school and a struggle with bullies after school. Feeling left out and disregarded by his peers, Doug found alcohol in his early teens and a new way to cope with life opened up. Hanging with like-minded friends in high school and college, Doug's drinking escalated, as did the negative consequences of his increasingly frequent binges. In the midst of his functional alcoholism, he managed to sustain marriage and career into his late 20s when the wheels started to come off. Faced with the inevitable misery and pain that accompanies every alcoholic's demise, life got bad enough that, by age 28, Doug finally put down the drink and came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had the opportunity to attend many meetings with Doug during his 12 years of sobriety, and can personally attest to the hard work and commitment he has invested in the program. From regular attendance at meetings to a wide variety of service work to continuous commitment to his family and friends, Doug has clearly demonstrated a program in action. Listeners will surely identify with many parts of his story and glean valuable insights into living a sober life with purpose and integrity. So, please enjoy the next hour and five minutes with my friend and AA brother, Doug W. Hi, I'm Doug. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Doug. Welcome to AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You and I had the opportunity to attend a really great men's meeting today. It's, uh, we've, I've done a number of these interviews after that meeting. And what's great is it gets guys really prepped for talking from the heart. And I really appreciate the fact that you're with me today to be a part of this experience. Thank you, Howard. It's good to be here with you. You and I have known each other a pretty long time, I'd say. I met you when you first came in. And how many years ago is that now? It'll be 12 years uh, in two weeks. Well, so your sobriety date is? August 10th of 2011. My first meeting was, uh, it was a Wednesday night. It was pretty close to my house. I figured I wouldn't know anybody there. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed very anonymous. I like that. Um, and then I came within about, I probably came to Holy Name on Sunday night, you know, within that first week or two. And that's probably where I met you. That's right. So uh, most people don't just show up at a meeting without a good reason. What was there going on right before your very first meeting that made you think, I probably ought to go to an AA meeting? What was going on in your life at that point? I think a few things. I had just finished a graduate school program, mm-hmm. and I was working during the week and doing graduate school on the weekends. It was very stressful. You know, my father had kind of called in a favor to help get me into this program. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get in on my own. So mm-hmm. so I kind of felt like, you know, I was just uh, just barely skating by in this program. And, and it was real stressful. And I would say during those two years, my drinking went from what I thought was 
hey, you know, I'm a college kid, I'm partying, and I'm, you know, one of the fun guys, uh, to where I really felt like um, I'm drinking like an alcoholic, right? This is a problem, right? I, I didn't see, you know, grown professional men acting like this. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't see people who held jobs and stayed out of jail and things. I didn't see them, you know, drinking this way, this kind of relationship with alcohol. And I thought it'd get better when I stopped this MBA program. And instead, it just continued accelerating. So there was, there was no control. You mentioned what you said you saw as men were not acting like you were acting at that point. Let me ask you something, even going back, let's say, even to your childhood. When, when you think back to being a kid, if somebody had asked you as, a, say, an 8- or 10-year-old kid what an alcoholic was, what would you have said? Ooh, well, I would say that, you know, it was what my parents used to refer to as bums, um, which would be the guys that hung out outside the convenience store, typically next to some sort of, you know, uh, kind of an overpass. You know, they, they lived out of shopping carts, mm -hmm. and they always had a bottle, and they weren't really productive, and you couldn't trust them, you couldn't depend on them, um, and it was pretty easy to spot them. So, as was the case with my understanding, and even though there was addiction in my family, it still seemed like the alcoholism and alcoholics were out there somewhere, like, like you. Mm -hmm. If someone asked me the same question as a kid, I would have probably said the exact same thing, the bum under the bridge drinking out of a paper bag. And unfortunately, when I was growing up, most of the popular media at the time, that's how alcoholics were portrayed. It was very seldom that you'd see somebody portrayed correctly all the time. Yeah, so w would that suggest that you didn't have alcoholism in your family, or what, what's your understanding of alcohol when it looks at your extended family or your family of origin going back a few generations? So growing up, I did not see anybody, really, that I thought of as an alcoholic. You know, my parents didn't, didn't seem to be alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Aunts, uncles, you know, if that was there in the family it was avoided. It was uh, kind of minimized. You know, it really was not a part of my growing up at all. I mean, that, that I was aware of at that point in time. Did you ever see or encounter certain behavior that you couldn't explain that might have been alcoholism, but because you were a kid or because your parents weren't talking about it, that actually was going on that you, you, didn't, you just didn't know about it? At the time, not particularly. As time has gone on and as, as I became an adult and as the, kind of the kids left the house, mm -hmm. I, I started to, to notice that maybe the relationship with alcohol in my home wasn't what it was, you know, for, for a lot of people even really. It's, it seemed uh, like, hey, where did this come from? And that was really a surprise. And it was not like I said, not until I got into, you know, past 18 into college and would come home and I would just, you know, I started to see in my immediate family there, somebody stumbling, somebody slurring. And, and a lot of the externals, you know, were still maintained. Mm -hmm. I had a, I was really fortunate in the way that I was brought up. I was given tons of opportunities and, you know, my parents worked so hard to show me love and and keep us safe. Uh, but yeah, as time went on, I did notice that there was kind of a relationship with alcohol and not just in one person, the, in the people that interacted with that person too. And, and that surprised me as I grew up, yeah. Yeah, it would be surprising if you hadn't seen it, especially till your later teenage years. 
Do you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older half-brother and half-sister, and then I have a younger sister and then a younger brother. So there were five of you? There were five, yeah. And how close in age were y'all? My older brother is 11 years older. My older uh, sister is, I want to say, maybe eight or nine years older. Okay. Um, Yeah, and then my younger sister is about three or four years younger, and then my younger brother is probably five or six years younger. I see. My older brother was like eight or nine years older than me, so I didn't really know him as a kid, you know? And by the time I was old enough to be able to interact with, with him, he was almost out of the house, you know, and didn't want anything to do with a little, a little baby brother. Uh, what kind of relationship did you have with your older siblings or half-siblings versus your younger siblings? My father got married, had a, you know, a son and a daughter, got divorced, married my mom. She was younger. And then I was the first of their, their children that they had together. I see. Um, so my older brother really, he didn't really ever live with us, it felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, he lived with his mother. He would come visit on the weekends. Uh, but they were like in the woodlands. And so it was, you know, they didn't just pop in for things. And so, and then he left high school early to go pursue um, his, you know, his music passion, his music career. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really limited uh, as a child type of interaction with him. Uh, my older sister, she came down from the woodlands during high school and went to school with us and lived with us in Houston. Oh, okay. So, so you knew her much more like a traditional older, considerably older sibling than, than your half-brother. Yeah, she was, she was involved. She would take us to do things and we would see her and we'd have dinners with her. And so I would say a, a lot more exposure to her and a lot better you know, opportunity to build a better relationship. Yeah. Are you still close to this day? Yeah, we're still close. Yeah. I mean, she lives uh, in a different part of Texas and she's got a career and she's got kids and, you know, uh, so we both stay pretty busy, but uh, we try to do things together kind of as schedules allow. So your younger siblings, your, your younger brother and your younger sister, what was your relationship like with them growing up? So my mom had me. And so then, you know, I was born in 1983. Mm-hmm. And then um, my sister was born in 86. And then my brother was born in 87. So it was kind of, it felt kind of like it was me and then the two babies, right? That's kind of uh-huh. what we called them, the babies. So I felt a little bit more of, you know, kind of an island there in between the older kids and then not part of one of the babies, but still, um, you know, kind of sharing attention <laughs> with the other siblings too, right? Uh huh. Well, you said something earlier, Doug, about really having a pretty wonderful experience with your parents and them showing you a lot of love. I, I can imagine what you must think from time to time when you hear all the war stories and all the horror stories of people talking about their childhoods. And I've interviewed people for the podcast who have talked about having wonderful childhoods and everything else. And And when I first started hearing that, when I came into the program and throughout my sobriety, there was almost this feeling because of what a a miserable childhood I had Mm -hmm. and listening to other people's miserable, horrible stories about their childhoods, that whenever I'd hear somebody saying, my parents loved me and they treated us with respect and they were great folks and everything else, there's a part of me that wants to say, that can't be true. (laughs) What's it like for you sitting in meetings and over the years hearing about how crummy things were for other people, knowing how good they were for you. I was given everything that, uh, you know, kind of from a material perspective, I was given an opportunity to to go to a great private school. I grew up in a great neighborhood. Uh, You know, 
you know, my mother stayed home and cared for the kids. She had a housekeeper to come help. And so if she needed to do something, she could leave us with someone safe. So there was a lot that I was given mm-hmm. and it, it was still difficult for me. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, probably most of that has to do with kind of what I like to think of as a spiritual malady, kind of a, a need for God, a need for a spiritual connection that just wasn't developed. Um, when did you first feel that? You know, I would say I kind of felt restless, irritable, and discontent. I mean, as a, you know, from my earliest memories. Um, and so, you know, where, where some people would have said, hey, look at all these opportunities. And then there would be one or two things that maybe they didn't like or where they didn't excel or where they mm-hmm. had some troubles. And they were kind of resilient enough to get past those. I think the way that I'm particularly built you know, it, it was still really difficult for me, just that process of growing up and not not having, you know, kind of what I get from AA now, which is a way to go clear my conscience of the things that I've done that, you know, that my heart really doesn't like, you know, when I do those things and an ability to go and follow a script and go clean up and repair damage with God's kids when I've hurt one, because that hurts my heart too. And I didn't, I didn't know about that. I mean, you know, growing up, your parents say, hey, you know, go say sorry if you hurt somebody. But I, I don't know. It didn't feel as effective for me as, you know, like what we do in AA and really what I think I needed all along. Yeah. So it was difficult. And, you know, you combine that with I had uh, a learning disability, you know, had ADD. And uh, so school was a little bit harder um, in terms of being able to process things in the classroom. You know, and I was a, I was a small kid. I had a little bit later birthday, I had a March birthday, and you combine that with the fact that our family tends to just be a little bit smaller and in frame. And, you know, so there was things that, you know, that were a little more difficult than uh, than some kids might have had or than maybe some of my siblings might have had. Yeah. Did you get picked on a lot when you were a kid? I did get picked on. Yeah. yeah. I got picked on. Yeah. Yeah, I did too when I was a kid. And that's because I was fat. I, I was a fat little kid and also short and... Uh, the, pro- the problem was for me always that I could I could never get a fair hearing about that from the people I most needed it from. And I'm talking about my parents. Every now and then an, un- an uncle or aunt might talk to me about it, but there was never anybody to listen with any kind of empathy about that. What was your experience when, when you were struggling not only with the spiritual desire and the other things that were happening to you? What kind of opportunity did you have to share that with the people who might be able to help you? And what was their response? You know, my father was really successful in business and he loved it. He was really good at it. And mm-hmm. He had a lot of great relationships in business and, and it, you know, it was served as a great business mentor for me and a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But what I have found is that a lot of times being in the boardroom and, and demonstrating confidence, uh, not showing weakness, not being vulnerable, you know, looking intelligent, uh, being witty, having, being a presence in a room that a lot of those things really, to me, I feel separated when I have those behaviors. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that those were real helpful for my dad in, you know, success in the business world. And that was kind of the way he was wired. And I, and I guess the way he was brought up too, but you know, in AA, we, we really do a lot of the opposite, right? We we're taught to tell on ourselves, we're taught to be humble. You know, we had the whole meeting today about humility mm-hmm. and about admitting when we're wrong and admitting we don't know it all. And, you know, I think there was an error at home. And, and I guess it feels like 
this is pretty pretty widespread, but for somebody like me, I needed I needed way more. I needed a way different approach to things and a different system. And so I don't feel like I had the outlet that I would have liked um, in terms of you know having that level of kind of a safe space to be vulnerable, to be intimate, and to really let my guard down. Instead, it was really all about well, you know, look, this is the type of man we are in this family, and you tough it out. Those things don't matter. You know, what matters is is our our you know standing in the community, our business success, our status, how we look, and our intelligence. And, you know, if you, if you got picked last in dodgeball, uh, you know, it, you just move on, right? That doesn't matter, you know, or if you didn't get a good enough grade, is there something we need to change? It's, you know, just work harder. And so that made it to where, you know, one, I had a great need. And then two, I don't think my parents, you know, had, had grown up in that mindset, you know, that we kind of have to have in AA or that I see a lot of in AA of tolerance, acceptance, understanding the problem, and and accepting everything just as it is, as opposed to really pushing for an ideal certain outcome. Yeah, I get that. And what you're describing, Doug, is what I've seen a lot over the years in both men I've sponsored and, and other people I've known in the program. When they had a, a parent who is particularly successful, either in business or in some other endeavor, who takes that same paradigm of success and management back home, and that's how they manage their home and their children, there's something missing there. Because in the business world, you're not going to show unconditional love for your vice president or your competitor. But in a home where you've got a parent, that's really what you're striving for. When you're operating like that in a business environment all day, and you bring that same that same framework for dealing with your family, then as a kid, you're not getting anything what you need. Sounds similar. Yes. Uh, I mean, my parents did, you know, my mother was raised by a, a World War II vet who saw combat in Normandy in the Battle of the Bulge. And, oh, you know, so that's, that's again, going to teach you to compartmentalize some things that are painful or difficult and just really focus on outcome. He was, he was a pretty successful businessman uh, as well. And so, you know, I, I think there was just this focus on excellence and... I think some people would thrive in that environment, but me as an alcoholic with this, you know, one with a learning disability and kind of being small and, uh, and then I've got kind of this, what I now know is untreated alcoholism. It was, it was really difficult. I felt alone and, and I felt I had trouble connecting and I felt like I didn't know exactly what was wrong with me, but I did feel less than. And I felt that then, but I, I didn't know, you know, necessarily how to express that. My parents tried to take me to psychologists and things. And some of it was I wasn't ready to go use some yeah. of these tools that they tried to give me. They might have been able to listen to me come home and really kind of like we do in AA inventory. Hey, here's here's what happened. I was selfish and scared and, you know, here's here's what my needs are and here's how I feel like I can't take care of myself. So had I been able to do that, had I been mature enough, they, I would have guessed, would have responded, you know, in a loving, compassionate way. But I wasn't there. They didn't know they needed to do that. Um, and so the result was uh, what should have been a good childhood really felt kind of crummy. And, and what you're describing is a situation where if the needs are to be expressed, the presumption is that the kid is going to do it and not the adult. But the kid, in my case, I could never figure out what to ask or what to say or 
put into words how I was really feeling. And so often when I would go to my parents with any kind of problem or whatever, they'd say, their response to it wasn't loving. Well, tell me about it. Let's, de- let's decompress. Let's debrief here. It would be grow up, you know, knock it off. Just buck up. Forget about today. And, and you know, some of that may have been okay. But when I look at the, the impact it had on me as a child and then later on in life, you know, how that same schema got injected into other parts of my life. So when you were a kid, how did you cope with that from the time you were old enough to understand that it was bothering you until, let's say, you were able to get to alcohol to deal with it? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I needed alcohol all along. I didn't have that available. I didn't, I didn't know that would fix it. Um, and, you know, I would say the first way that I was able to kind of, you know, control things in my reality a little bit was to kind of uh, act out, acting out behavior, right? You're picking a fight with your siblings, playing with fire, you know, you're, you know, picking fights with your babysitter, you know, disturbing class. So anything that I could do to kind of create intensity, uh, that was the first kind of method I had to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of take some of this pain away that I had that I wasn't really able to get much in the way of relief from. So the pain was about the lack of what it was that you needed at that time as opposed to pain being put on you by your environment or your home life. I think some of the pain was, and my father was a successful banker, uh, but he also was, was really reaching for the next social rung, right? Um, and and both, this, was, this was important to both my parents, and it's pretty normal in America. But I think you combine that with, so me being in this kind of you know, fancy private school, where these, you know, people have, you know, their parents are, you know, buildings in the med center are named after the, you know, and this kind of thing. And there's academic excellence, right? Um, and there's, you know, athletic excellence, you know, excellence, you know, and, and I come in there kind of short and kind of skinny and, you know, learning disability and, and young for my grade. And, and it was, it was pretty miserable for me. So I think there was the pain of the environment, right? And then I think on top of that, you know, there was, I didn't necessarily have a set of tools that could effectively deal with all that. I kind of just felt stuck. Yeah, I get that. And the thing is, when you're a kid and you're facing the kind of situations that you're talking about, there's a bag of tools that we find out about much later. Like I found out about the bag of tools once I got to AA and they told me about a bag of tools. But can you imagine having been a kid and knowing that there was a bag of tools out there somewhere? If I had known that, I might have asked my parents for that bag of tools because I felt exactly like you. So when you were going to the private school and everything, when did, when did you first take your very first drink? The first drink that I remember taking was, my parents were not beer drinkers, but there were two Coors Lights in the back of the fridge, right? Uh-huh. Okay, I'm guessing I was eight years old, seven, eight years old. And I grabbed it. I peeled the tab off. I took one sip. I don't, I don't remember liking it particularly. And then I put it back. <laughs> open. <laughs> I kind of freaked out. And of course, you know, they came the next day and said something to me and I, you know, I don't know what I said, but I kind of got in trouble and I didn't even, you know, I didn't even get the benefit of the buzz, Uh, but I I sure did catch some trouble over it. Uh, Yeah, a lot of, a lot of us have that first sip way earlier than the sip taken by our own accord with the knowledge of what we're doing. What, at what age did you finally take a drink on your own volition? I would say... Turning 14 years old, yeah. sometime that year, you know, at the liquor cabinet when my parents weren't there, filling up a, you know, like a scope bottle or something like that, and then running up to, to my room, you know, with one of my friends and kind of 
you know, maybe in anticipation of prom or something like that. It feels like that was kind of when I started doing this. To me, it kind of felt like it was the behavior where, you know, I'm kind of doing something I'm not supposed to, and that's exciting. So this kind of acting out for negative attention. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember kind of getting a charge, you know, in that way. And then the first time that I actually kind of felt drunk, I think I was at a friend's house and we had like, you know, gotten some guy that, you know, kind of homeless guy outside of a convenience store to buy us like a 12 pack or mm -hmm, something. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I actually kind of did real drinking at that point. You know, it kind of felt like, okay, well, so this is how you do it. And, and I remember, you know, thinking this is a good thing, right? This is positive and I need more of this. And this is kind of what the cool guys at school are doing. I started to feel cool about this time, right? Because I was the one I was, hey guys, let's go get some cigarettes and a dip. And, you know, we're going to, you know, get some alcohol somehow. I kind of started to feel like I had arrived, like it describes in the book, in this time. And it was, you know, marijuana was involved too. I didn't realize it exactly. My friends kind of tricked me the first time I ever smoked weed. They said it was a cigarette because uh -huh. I was afraid. But it was all in that same kind of, you know, six to 12 months um, entering high school mm -hmm. where, you know, kind of all these, you know, these vices really started to become a regular part of my life. I'd been missing it my whole life, right? I'd been missing the, the companionship the camaraderie, you know, this feeling of like, I'm kind of legitimate. Uh, and I've found something to treat on a, a more consistent basis to treat this really crummy feeling I had inside. So, And you found a group of people who would be your running buddies. That must have felt pretty good being included. It did. It felt really good, right? These were the guys that, you know, I had trouble hanging out with, you know, when I was in third grade, fourth grade. But these kind of guys, you know, they were just cooler. Yeah. They were cooler. And this is what they were into. And this is what I was into. You know, it worked, right? So this is as you were going into high school. Going into high school, yeah. So how did that behavior play out during high school for you? Did you, did you hang with that particular group? And how did it affect your scholastics as well? My grades weren't that great. Uh, grades never really were that great. Um, and so I was, I, I always, you know, got by, but I, I wasn't like, excelling in school, right? Well, you had the learning disability to kind of lay that off on, didn't you? I had learning disability. You know, my parents were really good, right? They, they did what they could. They got me tested. They got me extra time. You know, they got me Ritalin. They threw what they could at the problem. Uh -huh. I didn't get held back. Some of the teachers suggested, you know, you should be held back. I didn't get held back. I don't know if that would have helped or not. But, but anyway, so for the most part, I just kind of had to um, grind it out and, and do what I could and take advantage of things like the extra time or things like, you know, uh, kind of getting to school early and trying to, I cheated a lot too. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, cheating or, you know, kind of getting help from a friend. And, and thankfully I was still in, you know, kind of small private schools. And so if I had the, the, will, the willingness, the inclination, I had plenty of access to teachers to go say, hey, I didn't understand that. Or I was too nervous to ask a question about that sure. in class. Please explain. I was given a lot of opportunities to to deal with these things. And mm -hmm. some of the time I took advantage of it, but I wasn't a great student. And you were hanging with a particular group of guys? Yeah, I was hanging with the guys that were, you know, on the football team, a lot of them, and they kind of had cool cars, and some of them had pretty girlfriends. You know, this kind of need that I had and that I had seen my parents do, kind of pursuing excellence, you know, in some of the financial you know, uh, material, you know, kind of status, some of these kind of things. That, and my parents were, were really good at it, I think. Uh, uh -huh. I kind of felt 
like I did a better job of that in high school because, you know, I was kind of hanging out with those guys at that point and they wanted to hang out with me, right? We'd get together. Hey, you want to, Doug, you want to go have a dip in the bathroom? Let's cut class. Oh, of course. You You want to hang out with me? Of course. (laughs) Um, And I loved it, right? And so I was connecting, you know, I felt kind of special and I was included and, and I had had trouble being included and kind of letting myself even really connect in those earlier grades just because I didn't have a solution for the alcoholism. And so these people yeah. were trying to be my friend and we really, you know, it was really hard for me to just even feel okay enough in my skin to do much with any one person for, for any amount of time. I would say the use of alcohol made it easier. Looking back at your, the four years in high school, uh, did you ever have any negative consequences or get caught or anything else like that happen to you? Yes, I did. I, I would say I kind of built my life around around kind of alcohol and being able to go smoke cigarettes. And you know, I kind of had a little bit of a, you know, a marijuana phase in, in high school, too. One of my friends had a big party because his parents were divorced. Mom went out of town. So we had a big blowout. Right. And then sure enough, I was the drunkest guy there. Right. Something happened. A girl um uh, you know, got hurt uh, somehow. And I was the one that everybody said was the drunk one because I was the one throwing up. (laughs) I get called into the principal and they kind of said, hey, we've heard, you know, this and, you know, you better just admit it. And so I said, yeah, I was. So I got suspended. So that was the first, that was like 10th grade. And Mm -hmm. so that was, you know, one of the first big, you know, kind of consequences I had from alcohol. And what I had decided was, well, um, I'm not going to give up alcohol. And so I'll just give up these friends at this private school where we've got this, you know, Christian principal is all over us. So I'm gonna go hang out with friends from high school, smoke cigarettes, I can drink all I want, you know, um, and I'll have my freedom and, you know, and everything will be fine. And all I got to do is just survive two more years, get to college and, you know, and I'm good. So and it sounds like a pretty interesting wave to ride into college after high school. You got into trouble for something that you weren't even involved in, but alcohol was still seemed to be the focus because you were the sickest there at the, the deal. I mean, that. so what was college like for you? College was great, too. I went to a little bitty private school, a uh, little Methodist school in Mississippi. Uh-huh. You know, I was kind of this kid from the big city and, you know, I had a cool fake ID. It's better than the <laughs> fake IDs in Jackson, Mississippi. And, um <laughs> You know, my grandmother gave us, you know, some some money at Christmas to float, you know, beer. And my dad was, you know, his his job was going well. So he, you know, had a pretty good budget. He had bought me a new car in that first year or so of college. I, you know, again, I felt like I'd arrived, right? You know, I kind of felt a little more comfortable with girls and kind of starting to, you know, doing the, kind of the dating thing. I wasn't very good at it, but I started it. You know, there was all the fraternity parties. I joined a fraternity party. I had fraternities fighting over me, right, as opposed to feeling excluded, you know, and, and kind of, you know, the earlier school ages, I, you know, I had people that wanted me and, you know, I kind of had a cool car and... It's kind of like your reputation preceded you, huh? Yeah. It, so it was, you know, college was really pretty amazing. So the fraternity that you were in, were you daily drinking at that point? I was not. No, I had real bad acne, too. I forgot to mention that. So, uh-huh. Although the alcohol helped me kind of forget about that. And so I was on um, some medication to keep the acne down. And you're not supposed to drink on it. But, oh. you know, three, three nights a week or whatever, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I would say I'll forget it. And, and I would drink a lot on those nights. And so, you know, I was kind of. You were a binge drinker. Yeah, binge drinker. So. 
So it sounds like you had a pretty wild time in college. Yeah, I mean, I studied, studied business. That felt, you know, understandable for me. I had my dad to call and ask accounting questions to. And so, and I really valued, I placed a lot of importance on grades and business and kind of getting a job and how I looked for internships and things like that. So I, I was able to, to work pretty hard for three or four nights a week, pretty disciplined, not much alcohol during the week, uh, big blowouts, on the weekend, big fraternity parties, things like that, long nights out at the bar. Um, and I was kind of pulling it all off. So to, to me, it felt like I had it handled and just like I was, you know, uh, one of the normal fraternity kids that, you know, goes through, has a big time and then goes and, and can be successful afterwards. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook. Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So what were the next number of years like? I mean, we're, we're talking about a period from 22. Until, how old were you when you stopped? I was uh, 28. Six years between getting out of school and when you stopped drinking. Can you expand on those six years and what they were like in terms of the progression of what would become the alcoholism that brought you into AA? You know, getting, getting out, I got, a, I got a job in banking just like my dad had had. Started work and, you know, the economy was good. So the bank, we were busy. We were closing deals. Um, I had some success. I brought some new clients in. So, you know, I was getting promoted. So, I mean, things were going really well, right? I'd take mm. clients out drinking. I started an MBA program two years after uh, graduating from undergrad. And at that point in time, what, what was kind of a, a normal kind of weekend binge behavior really turned into like, I mean, it was like the first class. I remember the class. It was a stats class and a business law class. And they were so hard, I just felt like my head was going to explode from all the pressure and the tension. Mm-hmm. And what I found was, you know, coming home during the week and drinking, right? And I guess I'd stopped the you know, acne medicine or something at that point, you know, and I, I stopped using tobacco too, right about the time. So whereas I had, you know, tobacco to kind of go to for a little something yeah. for me uh-huh. um, during the week, you know, now I've kind of gotten rid of that. You know, the, the woman I was dating at the time, you know, kind of gave me some grief about that. So I stopped that, but I started drinking more, you know, I started drinking during the week as, you know, as a result of this, this MBA program. Um, and, and part of the reason I was drinking so much at night is, is the stress. And some of it was I was taking Ritalin uh, to get through a busy day at the bank and then four or five hours after 5 p.m. studying at my desk for the weekend's classes. You know, you're all, you're all wired up on, you know, caffeine and, you know, and Ritalin and things like that. And, and 9, 9.30 comes, you can't just put your head down on the pillow and go to bed. So, you know, I'll take a Lunesta, I'll get a prescription for that. And then I'll drink some, you know, red wine or I'll drink some vodka or, you know, screwdriver or whatever. And so it worked, right? It was able to get mm-hmm. me to bed. 
But it was at that point in time where I started to feel like an alcoholic. I was like, this behavior is strange. I didn't see my dad do this. Why am I needing so much of this? Why is this, this pressure so great? But, you know, I had to get through school and work and get some rest. And so that was what I did. And you still had things to blame it on outside of the alcohol, didn't you? The Ritalin and the stress and everything else. When did it start being more about the alcohol than the other things? I would say, I would say my heart really was, was alcohol. Um, and when I finished MBA, there was no real need to go take a bunch of Ritalin, you know, starting at 5 p.m. and study for four hours. So I could kind of wind down, right? Go, you know, play ping pong in the garage. I was, I was married at this point in time, got married in 2009. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got rid of the sleeping pills and the Ritalin and stuff like that. And I figured with the stress from MBA, you know, being gone um, and just kind of regular working a day job, you know, you know, it wouldn't be so bad. Maybe I wouldn't drink like a maniac. Um, but that was not the case. I still drank like a maniac and it kept progressing despite the fact that all the stress was gone. Did you do most of your drinking at home? Um, it was a little bit of a mix. Um, I would say probably the majority of it was at home. Um, but I mean, being in kind of the business development sales field, you know, we'd go take clients out, take them out for, for a dinner, you know, and there'd be lots of alcohol or, you know, or, hey, I'm going to go to the, the country club or I'm going to go to the social club downtown. I'm going to have some drinks. I'm going to kind of network. And then I'm going to go home and, hey, this is a good thing. I should be doing this. I should be networking, right? This is building the business. Were you encountering resistance from your wife to the, your drinking or was she drinking with you? What, what was that? relationship like? You know, she would complain when I would do something stupid. There was one time where we had gone to dinner at my aunt's house and they were big wine connoisseurs. It's had this fancy red, you know, red wine from Napa Valley. And, mm-hmm. and I drank a ton of it and hadn't eaten much. And, and then I fell asleep in the car on the way home and she shoved me. I was in the passenger seat. She shoved my shoulder to wake me up and I woke up. But when I did, my head t- tipped back and it kind of created like this, you know, gag kind of reflex in my throat. And I threw up all over the front of her car and down her air vents. Oh, no. God. So, you know, this is like I've got work the next day kind of thing, right? So, you know, was she on me to go to AA? No. But she sure complained when, you know, I, I would, you know, do something that caused her some grief. So she saw that there was a problem brewing. And did, did it just get worse over the years? Did, was there a progression? Yeah, I would say there was uh, a progression. There was just... You know, it was like once alcohol had me, you know, kind of starting around that, you know, age 24, 25, it just never, never let the grip never let up. Uh, Mm. And so, you know, I would try so hard. I'd have some shameful event like, you know, falling asleep, you know, uh, at the networking club where I'm supposed to be there and, you know, impressing people and meeting Mm -hmm. prospective clients. And the bartender would come wake me up after an hour or two, like, uh, (laughs) you know, sir, sign your check and get out of here. And so I would have these kind of shameful events and try to stop and go, this is not how we behave. This is not, I didn't see this growing up, but I just couldn't. It just, you know, I could go three or four days, right? I could try to count drinks. I could try to, you know, put them in an app and, you know, not exceed calories. And I tried, you know, lots of different, alternate sparkling waters, you know, with alcoholic drinks. And no matter what I did, I mean, it was just like, you know, my body demanded a certain amount of alcohol per week. And if I didn't give it to it, you know, the spring was just, you know, in the jack in the box was just compressed all the way by mm. Thursday night or Friday night. And then, you know, it would just explode open and, 
that, that caused trouble at home and, and caused some kind of embarrassing consequences, you know, in a professional setting or a social setting or... Sounds like it was getting worse and worse. It was. Yeah, it was absolutely progressing. So you're coming up on the point at which you get into AA. Yeah. So I was, I was 27. I couldn't get a handle on my drinking no matter what I tried. Um, and I tried, tried everything I could. Now, when I had quit smoking cigarettes, I had gone to the doctor and he'd given me a pill, right? They had uh, Chantix or something. So I took that. I said, look, doc, I got pretty good willpower. Just give me this, you know, give me something to get past these first couple of weeks. And so when I was 27, I went back to the same doctor and I said the same thing. I said, hey, doc, you know, alcohol is just, I can't get a hold of it. Uh, Can you give me like a pill or something just to get me through 10 days? I think that's going to be the tough part. That's how it was with smoking. And he said, ha, ha, ha. And then he said, Holt, stay here. And he went to his office and came back with a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and a meeting schedule. And he says, in 25 years practicing medicine, this is the only thing I've ever seen work for that. And he slid it over to me and sent me on my way. That is a rare story where a doctor has interceded. Did you ever find out about him? Did it turn out that he was in the program or anything like that? Did you ever see him later on? I I talked to him. I went to him for, you know, for a number of years afterwards and, you know, thanked him for saving my life. And, and I even brought some big books back to him so that he could continue hand, handing those out, paying it forward. Um, and one of the guys I met in the program said that he got one of those books from, uh, from that doctor. He may have had some experience with friends or family or something. I don't, I don't remember the specifics. Yeah, but you wanted pills. He gave you a book. How did that go over? Uh, not well. Yeah? <laughs> I was mad. And so the book sat on the shelf for six months as I continued to try to control my drinking and not have to go, you know, go to these meetings. Did you ever crack it open? Did you ever take a look at the schedule of meetings and think maybe I ought to do this or did the books just sit there? Yeah, the books sat there. There was some, you know, those things were kryptonite for for a solid six months. And then, you know, eventually it's kind of like, man, I just, you know, I'd had a kind of an embarrassing month or two at the end. And and I kind of knew it was time, but I'd kind of been putting it off. And I was actually, so my my mom's side of the family, they've got a, a ranch. Uh, so we were all out there, me and my little brother and my sister. I don't know if my sister was out there. And my mom and dad. And my little brother, by the way, at this point in time, had um, had graduated college, but we didn't realize it at the time. But he had paranoid schizophrenia. And mm. so he would go seclude himself at one of the houses at the ranch mm-hmm. um, and kind of stay away from us. You know, he was kind of hearing voices and all this kind of stuff. And and we didn't get any of that. I just thought he was, you know, kind of being, you know, being lazy, not getting a job. And uh, anyway, so he's, you know, we're kind of invading his safe space. And, you know, he had drank some, he had drank some of my wine that night. And I was kind of mad that I didn't have it all. And so we were going back and forth a little bit, but kind of keeping our distance. He came out and shot a BB gun at me. Um, <laughs> and I had a little pistol in my pocket, a little thirty-two, And I kind of pulled it out and fired a warning shot into the ground. I was like, oh, mm. yeah, you know, don't, don't bring a... Don't bring a BB gun to a gunfight. Uh, and then he went and got a 20-gauge and fired that up into the air. Oh, and, then, and then I kind of dashed across the, you know, the yard and, and got a bigger pistol out of my car. And I had my Glock and I'm doing, you know, combat <laughs> rolls across the front yard. And oh, my mom's freaking out, by the way, at this point in time. And so she's called the, you know, the county sheriff or whatever who's on the way. And she kind of tried to take the gun away from me. And, and this is you drunk. Yeah. And your brother in his schizophrenia and paranoia. Yeah. 
and behavior. Yeah. So he, yeah, and I, he had had some alcohol that night and, you know, the poor guy's got voices and, you know, yeah. all, all this kind of stuff that he's dealing with. And so anyway, and I was, you know, I was really, really drunk at that point. And, um, you know, what should have been a kind of a safe place to go get drunk right out in the country in the middle of nowhere, you know, I kind of managed to mess it up. Um, hmm. And so the police come and I kind of, you know, yes, sir. Sorry, sir. I'll stay in bed. And, you know, they left, so I didn't really get caught when I should have, like a number of other times, drinking, drinking, driving, you know, these different kind of things. Um, but it was those kind of events where I was just like, I am going to, I'm going to die. I'm going to kill somebody. I'm going to, I'm going to hit somebody, you know, coming home, you know, from some drinking event out, you know, even if it's a legitimate thing, right? You know, say I took a client out or whatever. Did you have DUIs or DWIs along the way? Never got a DUI. So you, this this reckoning kind of happens to you at this point. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. What was what what did the final day or two look like prior to you picking up that book and that schedule? You know, I I think it just it finally came down to where it was like there's no way. Like I'm gonna lose. I worked really hard to get this job. I got this MBA. You know, uh, I went did this training program at work, and like I've got a lot to lose here. I don't think I'm smart enough with this. You know, learning disability. You know, and, and, you know, my limited offering in terms of skill set, personality and, you know, intellect, everything uh, to get another job. And like, I cannot screw this up. And I've got this beautiful woman that's married me and, you know, I'm going to lose her, too. And, you know, I hadn't really been able to get along with any other, you know, women. And so I'm going to blow that. And, you know, I'm going to be I'm just, you know, going to run my life and I might die on the way or kill someone. And I just, you know, for whatever reason, I had seen how it was going in my life, how quickly I had progressed. And I had started to see in my immediate family, you know, some of the behavior where as the person had aged and gotten into their 50s, uh, they're drinking a lot. Um, Mm. And they were stumbling and they were slurring and they were falling down and they were having to go get stitches. And I was starting to see this stuff. And I said, well, wait a minute, if I'm related, you know, to them and, and I'm worse off, you know, I've got I've got a worse case, or I, you know, I I'm not pulling it off as well, or something. I'm toast. You know, I have mm. to go. I have to stop. Um, I lose it all. You know, instantly. You know, or or imminently rather. And so yeah, I don't know. I think that was kind of higher power coming down, kind of tapping me on the shoulder, saying, "Hey, look, I've got something different for you." You know, and I I don't know what all went into the formula of me being ready without a DUI, without losing the pretty wife and without losing the job. And I had some kind of close calls at work, but you know, I was pulling it off. Yeah. And so I feel really lucky in that I was able to go get into AA just, just because I needed it. Um, I feel like so many people need this program and have a lot more pain and a lot more external consequences than I did. Um, but Hmm. I, I came in, I listened to the shares in the meeting. I said, yep, this is me. And the only way these people uh, were able to quit drinking for good is by continuing to go to this program and continuing to work these steps. And I better do what they say uh, or I'm going to die. I'm 28 and all these rock stars die at 28. You know, Jim Morrison and, you know, all all these people, Hendrix, you just go on down the list. And I was like, that's that's going to be me. I got a bad case of it. So I better I better get in and do what they say. So you make it to AA. When you f- very first walked in the door, maybe even your first few meetings or first few weeks, what kind of expectations did you have about what AA would be like? And did those turn out to be 
pretty valid or completely incorrect? What, what, what were you feeling like when you went to AA for the first number of meetings or weeks? I didn't know what to expect with AA. I had seen, you know, one or two movies where they're in some sort of, you know, recovery type meeting. And so I had a general idea. I just really didn't know. I didn't know if I was alcoholic, like in the same way that you people were. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that was part of I was terrified of seeing someone I know, you know, and I think on some level it was like, well, if I go admit this, admit this problem and then I can't do it or I can't get it. I'm terrified that I admitted that I had this and then I didn't then go solve the problem. And so I was kind of, I think I was trying to keep my guard up a little bit, but I mean, pretty quickly, like the first meeting or two that it was like, man, this is, this is where I belong. And, you know, and maybe I'm not an alcoholic like these people because I didn't have a DUI and I hadn't lost my job and I wasn't broke. You know, so part of me kind of said, well, maybe I'm not exactly like them. Like my case of alcoholism isn't as bad as theirs. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I also had the truth that I knew and that I felt, which was I cannot drink anymore. I have to quit drinking. And so whatever I am, you know, if there's something that keeps me off alcohol, you know, you know on an ongoing basis, that's what I need to do. When I was new, I, I couldn't quite understand what it was about the program that was going to keep me from wanting to drink. I mean, I walked in, I saw the steps on the wall, I saw the traditions, I saw all these people sitting there who seemed to be having a good time, seemed like everybody knew everybody, and everybody was having a good time in there except me. But I wasn't quite sure what it was about the program that was going to get help me stay sober. It, it just seemed nobody sat me down and, and this was unfortunate at my first several meetings, but nobody sat me down and said, this is what a sponsor does, and this is the role of the big book, and this is what the steps are about. I just went in there, and because I had been to some other 12-step meetings previously, I'd never identified myself as being in my first AA meeting, so nobody ever focused on me in that meeting and said, here's what you need to do. So I floundered around a long time because I, I had no idea about what it was that was going to keep me sober. What were your feelings like around that? Yeah, I feel I feel pretty lucky here. Uh, the very first meeting I went to, you know, I got a desire chip and uh, and Blaine came up to me and said, hey, you know, look, um, you willing to go to any length to quit, you know, drinking alcohol? And I don't remember exactly what I said. I guess I said yes. I don't know. <laughs> um, it was kind of a blur. But anyway, he gave me an assignment. He said, if you want to work the steps and you have alcoholism, you know, I can help you, uh, you know, treat your alcoholism and stay sober, do this assignment and call me. You know, Blaine is still my sponsor. Um, and I didn't start working the steps with him. I started with, um, with someone else uh-huh. and kind of tried for a week or two. And, you know, he was kind of, he's saying I didn't go to enough meetings. I was like, well, forget this guy. I'm like, oh, Blaine gave me that assignment. Yeah, yeah. And so anyways, but started working with Blaine pretty quickly. He's pretty good about sticking with the book. Taking you through the steps. Taking me through the steps, yeah. And that's, it was in those first few weeks of AA that I started to do what you all suggested. And maybe it would be something like praying, right? Um, And I wasn't particularly spiritual at that point in time. I would go to church, but I wouldn't say I had much of a spiritual connection. But I started doing what you guys said, which is, hey, read this in the morning. Okay, go to this meeting you know, okay, read this and write this out. And I started doing that stuff. And, you know, I had some pretty strong messages telling me not to do it or, 
telling me to kind of control it in some way. But as I took those actions, I started to, I, I feel like, you know, one pretty clear memory the first few weeks is, you know, you guys say, hey, look, read 86 to 88 and pray that in the morning. And I just remember thinking for the first time in a long time, I was driving on 610, right? Which <laughs> I'm guessing not a lot of people have this on 610, but, you know, I just had this feeling of like, man, things are good. You know, it was mm. just like this praying thing worked. Um, you know, there's hope, you know, like wow. I'm going to be okay. And so, you, you know, that kind of gives me a little more trust in the process of following what you all say, you know, uh, to treat this fatal illness because I knew it was going to kill me. And thankfully, I had some good willingness. What a wonderful experience that is to get that sense of knowing or coming to the realization that, hey, this will work, this can work. And that sense of hope, it sounds like you had, that's amazing to be able to, to have that, that feeling. So at what point did you start to feel really at home in AA? Was that early on or did it take a while for you to walk into the meeting and feel like this is my home right here? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say, you know, one of the first meetings I really fell in love with was, was probably that meeting where I met you. In fact, I think you actually um, put me in contact with Michael, who started me, you know, uh, doing the steps and then I kind of switched after him. Right, right. Uh -huh. But um, I think that was you. I'm pretty sure yeah, it was. I think um, it was. But anyway, it that meeting is a large meeting. It's a men's meeting. And I was, you know, a, a young working guy. I was married. And, you know, and I felt a I felt comfortable because I found a lot of guys. It's Sunday night. It's kind of a quiet time. Nobody's rushing around, or, or at least few weren't. Um, and I found guys that were kind of my age and stage, right? In that first, you know, year or two of sobriety. You know, maybe they're married or, you know, maybe they're you know, kind of professional guys and they're trying to figure out how to do this AA thing or how to, how to kind of be in like business development and not drink. And I just, I started to really connect and started to use the phone, right? I was thankful, I guess, that I had a little bit of a drive into work and that I would use that time to and from work. Uh, I'd get kind of bored on the road. And so I would say, okay, I'm gonna call Richard from you know, from Sunday night or I'm gonna call Jim, you know, and, and I was fortunate to have, um, you know, a few guys, Jim, Jim H in particular, kind of showed uh -huh. me how to use the phone like that. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize that that was beneficial, that that's how you do it, is you just call up a friend and say, hey, you know, you have five minutes. Hey, man, how, how's your day going? You know, and then you chit chat and then you hang up and that's it. You don't have to set up a golf or you don't have to set up lunch. And so I started to do that. And that really helped me kind of anchor in socially you know, I was working the steps, um, I was going to meetings regularly, and so I really kind of fell in love with that Sunday night meeting. I really hated missing it, um, <laughs> you know. I was always glad to see you at that meeting, too, and I, I still, to this day, am always thankful and grateful when I see you in the meetings, because there, there are certain people that just kind of complete a meeting. You're one of them, and the guys you're talking about, your running buddies mm -hmm. and your litter mates, as they call them, those are really good guys, too. And those are the kind of guys I look at and I think to myself, if he continues just to do the basics of this program, he's got a long life of sobriety ahead of him. Early on, when did you start to feel or did you was there a point at which you started to feel like, hey, this thing is going to work for me long term if I continue to do the things I need to do? Yeah, I would say, you know, pretty quickly into that first, you know, three months or so. I mean, I started to kind of feel the promises and hmm. I started to kind of realize the, the problem with selfishness. And, you know, I started to realize I can stay sober and, 
you know, and this is a fatal illness. And I, you know, I think I've been given, you know, a reprieve, you know, from dying from this thing. And so it was pretty quickly there on, you know, get in, work the steps, make a few amends. Those amends were terrifying, uh, as was the fourth and fifth step. But, you know, my sponsor was pretty good. He didn't, you know, I think like most sponsors in AA, he didn't go and talk about any of the kind of confidential things that I had told him. And, and so I felt some pretty good trust in the process. And then I felt the relief of not having to defend these behaviors, right? These things that I did when I was in so much pain, living in this kind of untreated alcoholism, right? A boy in, a boy in pain will do a lot of desperate, you know, a lot of you know, things that really don't line up with his values. And what I found in doing fourth and fifth step is I was able to stop defending those behaviors and say, you know what, I really don't like, I really don't like that, right? And and, and admitting it, I got some freedom from that. I wasn't expecting that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, doing that and then making some amends to my parents and, and to siblings and, you know, my wife and things for the harms that I'd caused them and my selfish behavior, I just started to really feel connected to more and more people. And I started developing these really amazing, close, intimate friendships with guys in AA. And it was just, it felt really great. I was like, this is kind of what I'd been missing. You know, I needed this all along. I just, you know. That's a beautiful realization to come by too, that I've arrived, I'm here. These are my people. I can, I can count on them, they can count on me and that sense of love and spiritual connectedness. That's why I love the where the 12th step is, because it comes as the culmination of all the work prior to it, that we have that spiritual awakening. That's really cool. But so you've got 12 years in between then and now. What have been some of the high points and low points, and how did AA and your involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous help you through those times? You know? A lot had gone really right. Started having kids. I had two kids. I had a healthy girl and and a healthy boy. Um, you know, we had a little little bit of a you know ICU scare with my son right at the beginning, uh, but you know he was okay. He got out, and and my wife had had preeclampsia, so she was you know kind of uh, it, it was a little scary, you know, with my first child. But like those things were manageable, yeah. right? It would be scary, and then you you would work through it. I would say my father, um, my father started to lose his memory in, you know, kind of 2015, 2016, 2017, you know, so, so there's that going on. There's my little brother with schizophrenia and he's, he's being violent, uh, towards my parents in some cases, you know, the police are taking him to, to jail for a week. So hard stuff started to happen in life. And then, you know, in 2017, I got the call from my mom that my father mm. had died and, and she said, and he took his own life. Oh, and, sorry. um, and that was just, I mean, that was just a big surprise. And it just felt like I had been, you know, kind of run over by a freight train, mm. um, just this shock. Um, you know, that was one of the first really hard things that was really hard on my marriage too. So that's what, five, six years into your sobriety at that point? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this guy was kind of the rock of our family, my dad, and he was this, you know, successful business guy. He's well-liked and he's, you know, kind of in the right, you know, groups and clubs and all this stuff. And, and then to go do something like this, um, it, it was kind of embarrassing, kind of. It was really embarrassing. Um, and I think it was, 
you know, it, it put a big emotional burden like on my wife at the time. And, and it kind of just popped this bubble that we, I think we had. How did you process that tragedy personally? You know, I, I think I went to a meeting as soon as I could, right? We went over and saw my mom at the house and the police were there and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, so, so I think I, I went to AA, you know, I called the, called the counselor and, and I felt really bad about the whole thing too, because I was worried about my dad. He was still driving. He still had an office. He had kind of lost his like executive job at the time, you know, and, and anyway, so I, I kind of told him, I, you know, I said, Hey dad, I'm, you know, I'm kind of worried about you. You're driving and I've noticed your memory is, is getting worse. And I said, I really don't think you should be driving. I'm afraid you're going to, you know, mix up red and green and you could get hurt, maybe hurt somebody. Why can't we just get you Uber or something? And he kind of said, ah, no, I'm fine. And, you know, and it was about three weeks after that that he um, he actually committed suicide. Mm. And so I, I felt a lot of guilt about that. Just like if I had kept my mouth shut and not tried to play God, you know, maybe this would have somehow played out differently. And I don't, you know... Um, who knows what the the truth would have been and all that. Um, so who talked you off of that particular ledge? You know, I mean, I, I feel like I was at this club and I talked to Daryl at the, at the coffee bar and just was kind of, you know, in crisis. And, um, you know, and of course I'm calling my sponsor and, you know, talking through it with, with kind of my usual support group. But yeah, I mean, I basically went straight to AA and slowly just kind of, that's what one of the guys says is, you know, let AA love you through these hard times and, you know, and you'll get through them. You know, just don't drink and keep going to meetings and and you'll be able to get through them. And, and I did, you know, but it was really painful. It was really shameful. Um, yeah. I, mean, I felt like I needed my dad on so many levels still. And, you know, and he just kind of left in this, you know, really... Um, shocking, yeah. painful, tragic, you know, way. So then there's the pain of abandonment and plus all the chaos of yeah, actually yeah. having to deal with this stuff and talking to coroners and, you know, dealing with, you know, eulogies and, and emotional family members. And when people are in a lot of pain and in a lot yeah. of grief like that, you know, a lot of times they're real nasty. Um, and so, you know, I was working through all that and it was really difficult. Um, it was really bad. And I was busy, you know, I had a, I had a, you know, busy job and, and my wife had a busy job and we were raising two kids and running to daycare. And, and it was, it was, it was pretty hard, right? And it was pretty painful. It sounds tough. And the fact that you were able to get through it, the, the great thing about what you just said is how you mentioned AA as the, one of the first things that you did. Because it almost seems counterintuitive to make AA the first thing. And let me go take care of the family, like take care of the details, everything else. And then I'll go back and report to 8A what I've done. Uh, I, like you, when my, when my parents both died, I was in a meeting later that same day. Uh, an hour and a half after I closed my mother's eyes, after she breathed her last uh, breath, I was sitting at the, the, the club just processing and, and, and saying what was going on and, and the, the wave of love that came over, it didn't immediately heal it. It just was the beginning of that sense that I am going to be okay. Did you get that sense as you were sitting in those meetings? You know, I think I did. I think I, I was able to come down from, like, you know, like what I said was, was kind of a crisis state. 
um, where I just, you know, there's no peace, right? Your mind is racing. Your heart feels like it's about to explode out of your chest. You can't, you know, you can't drink it away, right? You yeah. just, you just have to keep, you know, living. Um, and AA was, we're fortunate. We live in a giant city and you can find yeah. an AA meeting pretty much every hour of the day almost. And, and so it's convenient and it's there and it was, you know, I'd had some kind of hard things happen in, in life a little, you know, maybe, you know, maybe your grandma dies or something like that, but it's, it's not like your dad committing suicide. And I had, you know, I had kind of used yeah. AA in that way. So I feel lucky that I'd kind of had some training for, you know, for when one of these bigger ones happened. And yeah, and it just, you know, it just gives you just a little bit of peace and you find somebody else who's been through the same thing and they tell you they got through it and it's going to get better. And, you know, they, maybe they give you somebody else to call or they give you a suggestion, hey, call this person or, you know, hey, why don't you go do this? And, and you hear these words of wisdom that, that are exactly what you need to hear when you need to hear them. And for me, you know, those mm -hmm. are the kind of things that help me stay sober through some of these things that feel like existential at the time. And, you know, it turns out they're not really existential, but, you know, my, you know, my brain having alcoholism, I'm sensitive, mm -hmm. you know, I get paralyzed by selfish fear and, and I go to AA and I get some connection and I get out of myself a little bit and, and it allows me to have some time to, you know, kind of let my mind heal from some of these really hard things that are a part of life. Yeah. And being able to go and be in a room full of people, most of whom have gone through something almost as bad, at least as bad or much worse than what you went through. It just puts those problems into a different light. So did what happened around the time you got this happen and you got through it, did that experience, did you notice that informing future things that happened to you from that point until today? And, and what, what would some of those things have been? Yeah, you know, there were their life continues to, you know, send things my way that are not what I would choose. Um, and higher power is in charge of all this stuff. I have had, you know, um, I mean, I got divorced a couple of years ago. That was pretty crummy. Mm -hmm. um, COVID, you know, that was pretty crummy. So, you know, I've gotten through those and, and it's been a similar formula, you know, where, you know, maybe you do some inventory you know, or rework the steps again and, you know, make some amends and, and do some of these things. But mm -hmm. I, there's also been a lot of beauty, too, and I want to make sure to recognize those things for which I'm really grateful. I mean, raising kids, right? I'm raising kids with a toolbox and a set of values and a viewpoint that, you know, I mean, my mom even said it the other day. She goes, wow, that's, that's how that works. I didn't, I just didn't even know that existed, you know? And so I, I feel really grateful. I mean, for example, my son was walking to school. He had the school play that day, and he was really mm -hmm. nervous. And he was just picking fights with his sister, and he was, you know, saying bad words. And and it was just like I could tell. I didn't realize that what was going on with him was the play. But what we do in here is we talk about what's going on with us, and we get some relief. And and I was able to kind of do that and do it in a way that he, you know, kind of felt safe. And, and I think he didn't realize how nervous he was about it, but I kind of saw his body just, you know, this just big, I mean, th throughout his body, it was just kind of this big sigh when I said, are you nervous about the play, you know? And then, and I said and to my daughter, I said, you know, when you did the play, were you nervous? And she said, yeah. And then he kind of let out another big sigh. 
And you know, there wasn't any more fighting on the rest of the walk to school. And it just made me go, oh, man, I'm like, this is this is good stuff, right? This is maybe part of the reason why I've gone through, you know, all this pain and chaos is to learn how to kind of reparent myself in some of these things that at least somebody like me really needs. And and then I can then share those with my kids or mm-hmm. with other guys in the program or just with other folks. Yeah. I want to really thank you for doing this today, Doug. You know, it, I didn't realize how remarkable your story was going to be when we first started talking, but it really, it really touched me in a big way. And I just want to tell you that, that I'm glad you're my friend. I'm glad you're my AA brother. Uh, to see how your program has turned your life around and how 12 years in, man, you seem to be on, the, on a good course. And my hope is that for as long as I'm alive and going to meetings, that you'll be a part of my life. And I hope to be a part of your life for as long as that's going to be. Uh, I love you. I honor your sobriety and your commitment to staying sober and being of service in the program. So, again, many thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks, Howard, man. It, that, that warms my heart up. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you're, you're my AA brother. <laughs> and I love you, too. You. And, you know, I love that we can come in here and connect on this real level and and that maybe you know you know it's a way for me to be of service and kind of get out of myself today and you know carry the message of AA that you know helped save my life and and give me um, a life that you know can just have moments of you know incredible beauty in it so thank you well thank you well my friends that's a wrap for today's episode of AA recovery interviews I want to thank my guest, Doug W., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to the deep catalog of interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Please leave a rating or review on your podcast app. That will help others find us. And if you'd like to get in touch with me with any comments or suggestions, just email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.